come back with me to June 2012 for a second, my hometown of Duluth, Minnesota. I woke up one morning and I knew pretty quickly that two things were true. One, the governor had declared a state of emergency for my city and the roads into and out of town were closed. And two, there was a polar bear downtown swimming around in our newly flooded streets. Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. Basically what had happened was overnight enough rain had come down in a big storm that we had a flooded town, which was unprecedented. Mm -hmm. We'd never had anything like this happen, and it was really bad. The river rose 10 feet. Over 200 people had to evacuate their homes, and the damage to the infrastructure of the city was remarkable. Roads were washed out or collapsed. Mm -hmm. uh, bridges washed away. And... If you look up pictures of this online, it's it's pretty crazy. You'll see pictures of people kayaking in the streets or taking boats up to the ATM machine to get their money out. Wow. Yeah. Um, I remember watching a friend of mine <laughs> lose their car into a sinkhole in the road. Um, it was this, it was a historic day for the city, to be sure. Um, How long did it take the city to bounce back? Well, actually, they only just now in 2016 have finally got things back on track. Wow. Um, it ended up costing the county over $50 million. And now people are left wondering if this is something we need to be ready for again in the future. Um, every year we get really extreme winters. We I see articles every year that say something along the lines of, Places in Minnesota are colder than Mars right now. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we would have days off of school because with the wind chill, it would be like minus 40 or minus 50 Fahrenheit. Wow. And yeah. Um, and on top of that, you might guess, we also get a ton of snow. Um, and so, I mean, over the course of a winter, five or six feet of snow total is not crazy. Um, mm -hmm. That was the climate that the city is built for. Um, the city has invested money in plows. Um, we have large empty lots where we stack up the snow and then when it melts, it drains into a river nearby. So we're planned well for that kind of precipitation, but another kind, not so much. Now we're wondering, does my city need to be ready for floods to happen every few years? Do we need to change the layout of our streets to divert water? Is this what climate change is for Duluth, Minnesota? the Science in the News podcast. I'm Amy Gilson. And this is Yang Tian. And you just heard from Sam Watrous and Ilika Sahu. As you may have picked up, we made the recordings for this episode in 2016, late 2016. And we're just releasing it now because in the meanwhile, I got caught up with writing my dissertation, I defended my PhD, graduated, got a job, and so now I finally have some time to sit down uh, and finish this thing up. I also have a bit of a cold, but hopefully I'll spare you from any sniffling or coughing. Now, for an episode on climate change, a good amount has happened since 2016. And the main thing is probably that the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Agreements, the Paris Climate Agreements. So does that change any of the tape that we had already recorded? 
Well, not really, I think. And a lot of that is because cities are really important when it comes to both slowing climate change and protecting people from climate change. Over 70% of global emissions actually come from cities, and over half of the world's population lives in cities. So they're shouldering both responsibility for stopping climate change and for protecting the residents against its effects. But when it comes to protecting residents against the effects of climate change, it's a really difficult problem because we don't really know what the future holds. The effects of climate change are going to be really different if the world keeps emitting greenhouse gases at the current levels, if it rises, if it falls. So how do cities prepare themselves for a challenge that they don't know exactly what the scope is? Uh, and meanwhile, cities have to do so many other things as well, like working within their existing infrastructure and balancing their budgets so that they can um, attend to the daily concerns of their residents. So to get started, let's turn to uh, let's turn to Cambridge, where we talked with John Balduck, who manages Cambridge's climate vulnerability assessment and preparedness plan. T.S. Carpali went to talk to him and get a sense of what Cambridge might look like in the next few decades. Cambridge has been working on climate change since 1999, directly. Um, and when we started out, we were only working on mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, because in the beginning, we all thought we could prevent climate change. So for flooding, which I think um, is what people uh, worry the most about, you know, there's, there's some things we can do in terms of uh, managing smaller, sh uh, short-duration storms, uh, using green infrastructure to detain and um, store um, runoff. Um, we can build some more uh, uh, storage to capture some of that runoff. Um, but we don't think we can do that for the larger storms, and in those cases there will be um, periodic flooding that occurs in certain parts of the city um, that um, is probably going to be unavoidable. And so in those cases, we'll see if there are things we can do to make the buildings and systems more resilient to that kind of flooding. Um, that, that's going to be a real big, really a big challenge, especially for existing buildings and systems that we have to retrofit as opposed to new development where it's easy to say, well, you've got to build up to a higher standard. So we're looking at 2030 and 2070 mm -hmm. as our planning time frames right now. Uh, so for 2030, we're projecting uh, that we could see a tripling of days over 90 degrees. Um, and by 2070, there could be four to six times more days. Um, extreme heat kills more people than all of the other natural disasters combined. Um, so we're very concerned about about that and trying to get prepared. I think, but in that case, I think there are things we can do. We can reduce the urban heat island effect by reducing uh, impervious surfaces that absorb heat more and replace that replace them with vegetated surfaces and other kinds of materials that reflect uh, uh, sunlight. And so I think in the future, you could see a city that's greener um, and better adapted to those conditions. Um, also, a city that has more shading, both from trees and vegetation, as well as maybe physical structures uh, to help uh, keep people cooler. Can you 
maybe briefly explain just what the climate change vulnerability assessment is and kind of like what went into developing that? Um, it's hard to know exactly what, what the future is going to bring, and we're trying not to say we're predicting exactly what the future is going to be. Um, but on the other hand, I think we have already observed some changes and we have a good sense of the direction the changes are going in and how fast and how far those changes will go is what remains to be seen. Cambridge decided this was a very important issue, it was a priority, so it's actually made a, a major financial investment in this. So we hired a consultant team of scientists, engineers, and planners to help us figure out what to do. So we hired a climate uh, scientist to do these projections, and then we have other consultants that then translate that into basically planning information. We did a very spatially, geospatially oriented vulnerability assessment where we mapped out which parts of the city are at risk of future flooding. So we looked at where flooding occurs today, and then we modeled, well, if it rains more, how much more flooding is going to occur. So we see the floodplains expanding and getting deeper. Um, we also mapped our urban heat islands. So we mapped out where it's going to get hot, where it's hot today and where it's going to get hotter. Um, and then we looked at buildings and infrastructure and neighborhoods and to see if they're in these areas, if they're exposed. And then we, we went through a process of identifying their vulnerabilities and then what the risks are involved. So it's kind of a very technical approach. Um, you know, there's some limitations on what that can tell you, but we think that's a good start. Is there a different way of determining which stakeholders get involved in developing these reports? Yeah. So, I mean, a premise of our, our, our vulnerability assessment and our preparedness plan is um, that it's going to require a citywide effort by stakeholders across the spectrum to be engaged and work on making Cambridge more uh, prepared and resilient. So um, as we conducted our vulnerability assessment, we wanted to involve a broad range of stakeholders from across the city, so the institutions, businesses, uh, and residents. Um, so we had um, an advisory committee um, that we chose to be representative of that spectrum. It's hard to have a, a committee that represents everyone, yeah. but um, we, we wanted to get um, feedback from them, but we also wanted to engage them to get them to start thinking about doing um, things to prepare from, from the perspective of their own organizations or neighborhoods. So for instance, uh, MIT is doing their own vulnerability assessment now, and Harvard has done mm -hmm. some work along these lines as well. And uh, obviously those are very, two important institutions in Cambridge uh, account for a lot of land area. And so if we get them started, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's good progress in terms of helping prepare Cambridge. Whereas with businesses, I'm not sure they were thinking about it so much, but as we went through this, um, there are obvious implications for future development and also um, the idea of doing business continuity planning 
with this kind of data in mind has started to emerge and, mm-hmm. and we're starting to have discussions about that. Um, and we've been very open in our assessment and we're sharing all of our data with everyone, uh, whoever wants it. So um, I think doing the, the, the assessment, um, the way we did it is uh, it's helped raise awareness and also brought everyone along with us as we've thought about what the future might look like. And so we're not having arguments about um, what kind of risk we face. Uh, um, I think the, the bigger debate is going to be more about, well, what should we do about it? What would you say, like, if someone asked you, if you know, if a community member stood up and was like, what is the worst case scenario? What, what is the worst change that we expect to see from climate change that we should be the most concerned about? Yeah, well, that's hard because um, we're using projections that I don't think are actually the worst case. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're projections that are very plausible based on where the science is right now. Um, but we're not right now planning for Antarctica mm-hmm. melting, which is probably the worst case, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I, and I don't think that, you know, if that were to happen, I don't think it's going to happen this century. Um, um, but um, so in that sense, you know, we're not telling people the plan for the worst case right yeah. now. Um, I think what we're telling people plan for are, are pretty plausible things. Are you generally optimistic about Cambridge's you know near future? Yeah, well, I, I think it's it's um, good, and we and we find when we talk to people in the community that. They're happy the city is being proactive. We, when we started out, we were a little bit nervous that we'd just be scaring everybody. And so I'm not, we didn't find that to be the case. So people are happy we're facing this head on and, and trying to figure out what to do. Um, you know, I, on the more hopeful side, I think a lot of the things that we need to do actually can make Cambridge a better community. We can, um, especially around social resilience. We can build stronger networks between people so we can all help each other out and be there for, for each other when, when something happens. Um, so in that sense, you know, I think a lot of the things we, we need to do could, could make the city a better place to live and work. Um, but you know, it's hard not to look at these projections and, <clears throat> and be worried about what's going to happen. But it's, it's better not to close your eyes and, and try to do something. People are realists everywhere. Being a realist means acting, but it also means being realistic about the uncertainty in the climate models and in the human choices that go into them. Well, so, you know, there is a famous quote in the climate science field that all models are wrong, but some are useful. So what can we really get from those climate models? Carrie Emanuel is a professor at MIT. He is a prominent meteorologist and climate scientist who specializes in moist convection in the atmosphere and tropical cyclones. Professor Emanuel is the author or co-author of over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers and three books. Now you will hear the interview between our colleague Cece Hu and Professor Emanuel. So the only thing that global climate models can do directly is to tell us sort of what large-scale conditions might be, how the temperature might be different, how rainfall 
might be different going mm-hmm. forward. But it can't address certain kinds of extreme events like storms. And, uh, and so what we have to do is to run much finer models at the scale of the city, or maybe a little bit larger, that are driven, if you will, at their boundaries by these large-scale global so how- climate models. It all depends on the, the application. So, for example, I've been involved with a study in Boston and Cambridge uh-huh. about uh, how climate change might affect the probability of that river that you see down yeah. there below you flooding. Yeah. And uh, so to do that, we uh, looked at a region that basically covers eastern Massachusetts and goes out to sea a little bit. My part of this was fairly narrowly focused on tropical cyclones. Uh, and so we uh, only used one model to do that. But those tropical cyclone models, among other things, provide rainfall. And a colleague of mine I'm working with has brought an entirely different kind of model, which is a flood model. Yeah. It's a flooding model, including right down to the scale of individual streets and alleyways. It's driven by the rainfall provided by the first model, which is in turn ultimately driven by the global climate model. Okay, um, so what were the um, uncertainties in these smaller scale models? Well, there's a, there's a whole range of uncertainties. The, uh, perhaps the major uncertainties are the uncertainties in the global models that are being used to drive the small model. So if you use model A, you get one set of results. If you use model B, you get another set of results. Then there's the uncertainty uh, in the what we call the downscaling model, the finer region model. And that's a little bit less because we can test those models against the current climate rather extensively. You know, we, we have records of rain in Cambridge in a given rainfall. We sort of know what happens historically, so we can test that. How long do we have that for? Well, not very long. I mean, we know records of rainfall at Blue Hill, which is down there, um, for about 150 years. but. Oh, wow. Um, records of flooding in Cambridge probably only go back a century or so. And how how can we improve on the uncertainties? Well, you know, there's so many uncertainties. One of the uncertainties is what we are collectively going to do. In other words, yeah. the uncertainty about which emission scenario we're going to follow. Are we going to keep putting CO2 in the atmosphere? That's by no means clear. Yeah. So predicting human behavior is almost impossible. Um, there's a huge range of uncertainties. I think that our scientific efforts directed in the service of society are better spent more precisely quantifying the uncertainty than in trying to beat it down, which I think is unrealistic. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Um, so jumping out of Cambridge or the Boston area for a bit, um, let's look at other cities in the world. How do other cities plan? Well, I think that one of the main differences among cities is the particular risks that are most important to those cities. So, for example, Singapore yeah. is a place where it's already kind of unbearably hot. Yeah. And the risk of heat stroke in a place like that might be the major risk that they face. Singapore is too close to the equator to get a lot of tropical cyclones, for example, hurricanes. They don't form that close to the equator. Oh. Um, whereas, you know, a city like um, Chicago is yet an entirely different matter. What are the risks there? Well, rising levels of the Great Lakes would be one thing. 
changing, uh, because it indirectly affects the city, changing agriculture in that region. Yeah. So each city has its own particular set of risks to deal with. How do the scientists know which one, which model to use? Oh, okay. Well, so um, typically when we do regional studies, we use many global models. We're uh -huh. not satisfied with one. Uh -huh. um, and this is just one step in quantifying the uncertainty is by looking at a range of different models. Yeah. Uh, can we do better? Certainly. It might be nice to have more models for yeah, that purpose. Yeah. But then there are other ways to try to uh, deal with the uncertainty. For example, the downscaling model, if it isn't well vetted against observations, mm. then we would use more than one of those. I see. So, Because I've, I've always wondered if I, let's say I'm a, you know, the city planner for Beijing, for example, yeah. And I'm giving, uh, I'm given, I don't know, a hundred climate models that I can choose from as a policymaker. Yeah. How I guess I would hire a, you know, a scientist, and then the scientist would ideally use all of them. Well, so let 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 me ask you a question. Ideally, if you were a city planner for Beijing, yeah. Given the fact we're never going to give you a precise answer, what would you like to see from us? Would you like to see a probability distribution of, say, maximum temperatures in July? Yeah. Uh, so maybe it's easier to answer your question if we start from what the, the desired result is. Yes. So if we're talking about heat stress as a risk, okay, yeah. let's just say, uh, we know that if, the, if a certain quantity called the wet bulb temperature gets above a certain level, it becomes very risky. Yeah. So we want to see the probability mm -hmm. of that. Now, how would the scientists construct that probability? They would do that by consulting different climate models and different emission scenarios yeah. and maybe different downscaling models and come up with a probability distribution, which they'd hand to you yeah. and say, this is our best shot at it right now. Um, that's, I think that's the best we can do. What is your understanding of the decision-making process um, for climate change um, kind of policy making at the urban level, city level? Well, I think the answer to that question uh, also varies a great deal from one city or one region to the next. Mm -hmm. What I do see happening, I think this is fairly obvious, is that most of the activities on climate policy are at the city and maybe the state level in the U.S. or the province level elsewhere with relatively less activity at the national or international levels. Mm -hmm. And so the policy typically gets started out of a sense of concern that might have been highlighted by a recent flooding event or a recent heat wave, mm -hmm. maybe nothing, nothing to do with climate change, but sort of as a rem reminder or a wake-up call. And uh, city planners begin to think, well, what should we be doing? It also can be catalyzed by the ordinary need to maintain or replace a structure like a seawall. Yep. A seawall may be at the end of his lifetime. Now, should we build the same wall yeah. or should we build a taller wall? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a cooperation between government entities and people and yeah. it all depends on the level of concern and how future-oriented the culture is, yes, that's all right. kinds of things. Yes. In times of current political uncertainty, I think that's, we, we spoke about this earlier uh, with you know new administration, and how do you think climate science will affect urban planning or does it affect at all? 
here, I, I'm going to stick my neck out and make a prediction. Okay. And it's bound to be wrong. But when you add up the cost of all the regions and cities in the world that are trying to do something about this, um, it's going to end up being a very large number compared to the cost of preventing the problem in the first place. So I think people are going to wake up and say, hey, we don't need to spend $100 million buying a new building a taller seawall if we all get together and stop this problem from happening in the first place. And I think the other thing that will happen is that governments, even maybe this government in the U.S., will see the migration to carbon-free energy as an economic opportunity rather than as a liability, and then everything will change when that discovery is made. Yes. And when do you think that will happen? It's already happening in that's various right. parts of the world, yes, uh, right. especially China. China is perhaps right. first. Yeah. Uh, okay, last question. Um, what do you see a future city looking like? I, I'm not an um, expert in this region, but from what I can see with my own eyes, it's an evolution, not a revolution, and it's going to be an evolution toward much more energy-efficient buildings, toward much better transportation infrastructure to get cars and trucks off the roads, um, uh, much better resilience to natural phenomena like rainstorms and heat waves. And I think you're beginning to see this happening, and I think it's wonderful because I think the city of the future is going to be a lot nicer place than the city today. All right. Well, that is it for this episode of the Science in the News podcast. And that's it for me, too, as this is my last episode. So thank you for listening. It's been an honor to work on this show with so many talented people. And I know some changes are coming to the podcast, some improvements. So I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. For this episode, I want to thank the team who made it happen. Sam Watrous and Elika Sahu, who you heard from at the beginning. Tia Scarpelli, who interviewed Dan Balduk, and Cece Hu, who interviewed Carrie Emanuel, and of course, my assistant producer on this episode, Yang Tian. I am a PhD student in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard. I'd also like to introduce my colleagues Stanley Gill and Tash in helping editing and polishing the final cut of this episode. And that's a team that includes people from so many different backgrounds, including climate scientists, urban planners, biologists, and infrastructure engineers. So how's your city planning for climate change? Let us know by sending us an email at sitnpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy today's show and want to help others find it, the best way is to rate us on iTunes. And if you like, leave a review. Until next time, bye. I think that was it. Let me stop this. <laughs>